I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, are Britain and France still trapped in their own myth-making about their colonial pasts? One of the elements that this island story finds difficult to cope with is the fact that Britain now is very much a multicultural society, and yet in the island story, that multicultural, diverse population is very much, I would say, marginalised because instinctively we are telling the story of white British or white English people who fought wars and built empires. We need to get away from the we as white British and think about a we which is much more diverse and multicultural and try to understand that the other people have a history that is not ours and other people have a history, have an experience of our history which is not the same as the white British experience of our history. They were at the other end of the Maxim gun. My guest on the programme is Robert Gilday, who's Professor of Modern History at the University of Oxford and a particular expert on France. Robert's latest book, Empires of the Mind, looks at Britain and France's post-colonial experience and investigates how both nations have fantasised about what empire meant, how they've attempted to come to terms with the loss of empire but nearly always failed, and how legacies of empire still cast long shadows over current politics. We talk about hostility towards immigrants in the UK, dating back decades, which was whipped up again by the Brexit campaign. We also talk about ways in which British and French approaches to the end of empire have differed, and how radical Islam has changed the situation again. The history of the UK, France and the USA since 1945, wrote historian David Andres, is marked indelibly by a sense of entitlement to greatness. The loss of empire has undermined that sense and, Gilday argues, produced attempts to conjure up new fantasies of empire to reinforce colonial divisions in contemporary societies. More bluntly put, the poisonous legacy of empire is still feeding racism. When I met Robert in Oxford last month, Commemorations of D-Day were in full swing in Britain. So I began by asking him how he read the D-Day narrative that was being presented of defiant, heroic Britain almost single-handedly defeating the Nazi foe, 
There's a template here, it seemed to me, for post-war, post-colonial Britain's attitude to the EU taking shape, and a definite simplification of history going on. As we're hearing it on the on the radio and, and television at the moment, is very much you know an invasion that started in Britain on the south coast of Britain and finished up in France. The main theme is that is that Britain liberated Europe, and we're also unveiling a monument in Normandy dedicated to British soldiers who fought. So there's a certain amount of forgetting that um, this invasion, well, we haven't forgotten that it was with the Americans, but it was also with Commonwealth troops. And there's also a sense in which we've forgotten that the Second World War was a vast global war, um, also fought in the Pacific. And you know, the empire was mobilised, not only uh, the people from the drafted from the Dominions, but also from uh, the Raj and colonies in Africa. And so, for example, I think there are over 200,000 Indian or African troops that fought in the Burma campaign. And so that colonial dimension of D-Day is forgotten. The French side is also forgotten. I mean, there was a reference on the radio to French civilians who got killed. There wasn't the French presence on D-Day. De Gaulle wasn't even told. He was told with about 24 hours notice and he flew a complete fit. And I think that was one reason why he said no when we applied to join the car market in 1963. But there was a huge invasion in Provence on the 15th of August, which involved French colonial troops, the French French armies, Americans, and that was the the hammer blow from the south was really what caused the liberation of Lyon, Toulouse, Paris uh, very shortly afterwards. So I think there's a kind of foreshortening and a parochialization of the story of D-Day and indeed the story of the Second World War, which ends up with a very reduced, patriotic. Little England version of events which keeps people happy and contented, but which is very far from the truth. And that foreshortening joins up with our current Brexit moment. I heard a, a perfect example on Radio 4 a couple of days ago on a Vox Pop. Someone said, we beat them in 45, we hammered them in 66, and we can do it again. And I thought that's <laughs> that truncation there just, just sums up really a particular British view of, of the past whose manifestations are now being played out? Uh, no, I think there's very much a kind of us and them. You know, there is a trope that um, we, and I think we have to think about, you know, when we when people say we, they do tend to mean sort of white English people, other people, immigrant populations, other parts of the British Isles are implicitly excluded from this we. But I think there there is this idea that the, 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 the British liberated Europe, forgetting about... Uh, the Soviet Union, which bore the vast brunt of the German onslaught for three years before D-Day, forgetting about Commonwealth troops and so on. And there's this idea, I think, that having liberated Europe, Europe then was profoundly ungrateful and went on to resurrect itself, to boost its economies, to found the European community and then the European Union without us, and then had the cheek to rule over us, uh, either through Jacques Delors and the French, or through the Germans after German uh, reunification. Uh, so I think there's this idea implicitly that we, having liberated them, we were first of all shortchanged and then marginalised and then ruled over. So uh, the best option would be to get out.
I was thinking on the way here, the Germans have a a long compound word for Gangenheit's Bewältigung, meaning the the coming to terms of the past, the better to to cope with the present and the and the future. We don't really have any similar concept because we don't have any perceived need. Well, we don't have a perceived need, and we haven't really got to first base with thinking about our past. I think, particularly in the case of Germany, the Nazi era and then the Holocaust were so painful that they did have to um, put themselves inside out to rethink their past and to come to terms with the past and to dedicate themselves to democracy and to integration and to inclusion. The French obviously suffered defeat and occupation. Their response for a long time was to kind of big themselves up. De Gaulle famously said that the French had liberated themselves and that everyone had been on side with uh, the resistance. So that sort of national sense of greatness was was important for the French to rebuild themselves. I think with the British, it was almost as if what we had during the Second World War was good enough. In fact, the Second World War seems to the British to be the height of its history, where we were united and pulled together and dominated and won this war. And therefore, why should we have to rethink anything? And yet it seems to me that uh, what Brexit signifies is a a sort of death agony of the British Empire, which maybe will, or certainly should, provoke a certain amount of rethinking about our colonial past, because that is the equivalent to the difficult and tragic stories of other, other countries, that the empire which we built as I say in my book, it is a chronic, it is a fantasy of glory, but it's also a chronicle of anguish. And we haven't come to terms with uh, what we did to other powers, uh, to, our, to other countries, to other populations in the pursuit of power and greatness over a period of a couple of hundred years. Tell me why you decided to compare the British and the, the French story in this book. Well, I've always been a historian of France. The book actually came out of um, a, a previous study I did on the French resistance. And I was writing that when I was asked to give the Wilds lectures in Belfast in 2013. And I thought, well, I can't just say the same thing as what I'm saying in my book. So I thought, well, what what am I, you know, what's interesting that I could sort of pursue and develop? What interested me was the way in which France was liberated from North Africa, the provisional government de Gaulle moved from London to Algiers in 1943, and the French provisional government was set up in North Africa, and the the military pushback began in North Africa, or began in Africa, and then North Africa. And yet 10 years later, by the mid-50s, the same people who had liberated France and re-founded the Republic were back in Algeria committing colonial atrocities against the Algerian population, which was fighting for independence and self-determination. So that was one thing. And then the other thing, I, I, I became interested in the way in which, in many ways, the Algerian war seemed to be going on, still going on in France at the present time. The issue with the immigrant population in France is that many come from, um, is, is of North African and 
particularly Algerian origin. And the difficulties that cause is, is that there's a sense in which not only did the French lose Algeria, but they then found the, the Algerian population coming to their own country. So it was a sort of double humiliation. And some historians have talked about um, the colonial fracture in France, so that France is divided not so much in terms of class or or even regionally, but the, the colonial fracture between populations of immigrant origin and non-immigrant origin is one of the most profound fractures in French society. And the pain goes back to the Algerian war. And if you look at something like the Charlie Abdo atrocity, the people who committed that atrocity were of Algerian or Malian origin. So there is a, there are colonial roots to that. So why Britain? Because when I was writing, came to writing the lectures, writing up the lectures, it occurred to me that maybe I needed to do a comparison with Britain. I mean, the historians are always faced with this question, is the country they are working on exceptional? Are the British exceptional? Are the French exceptional? Are the Germans exceptional? And one way to deal with that is to do a kind of comparative study. And so I wrote my book as a comparative study of French and British colonialism to, to decide what they had in common and what they had, what was different. And I suppose the, the, the brief answer would be that they both went through painful periods of decolonization. For a long time, there was a myth or a story that French decolonization was much more painful because of the Algerian case, whereas the British undertook this peaceful, orderly transfer of power to newly emergent nations. But actually, there's been a lot more evidence recently that the de British decolonization was incredibly painful and violent, notably in the in the Kenyan case, the Mau Mau case. But the, one of the other main conclusions I came to was that um, both French, the French and the British have constantly reinvented empire in different ways, neocolonialism, global financial capitalism, the sort of new imperialism that you saw in response to 9-11. But the French have been able to ride two horses. They've been able to say, on the one hand, we're going to preserve our colonial influence or our neo-colonial influence, particularly in Africa, but we're also going to be at the heart of Europe. Whereas for the British, it seemed to be either or. Either they, were, they never really were at the heart of Europe, but they couldn't calculate that it was possible to be both a European and uh, a sort of post-imperial or post-colonial power. For some reason, it had to be either or. And I think a short answer to that might be that the British are not very good at cooperating. They're not really good at cooperating in international institutions. Partnership doesn't come naturally to them, whereas for historic reasons, they were used to lording it over other people, telling other people what to do. And if other people didn't like it, they would send in the gunboat. gunboat. So... I don't think the British really ever got the hang of being in a European partnership. Either they were running an institution or they were being run and they didn't like the the notion that they were being run by the Germans or the French. So that I think is one of the roots of Brexit. And you have this bizarre myth put forward by people such as David Cameron of Britain as a swashbuckling buccaneering nation now aren't those terms from piracy <laughs> yes they, i mean there are there are sort of shades of pirates of the caribbean about that but the point is yes i mean i mean it's not as surprising as you think because 
when we talk about free trade imperialism or um, the trading the, the trading form of imperialism, it was conducted through violence. It was first of all, it was it was based on slavery and the slave trade. Then it was based on uh, imposing uh, oneself in other markets. So, for example, the East India Company was not just a trading company; it had it had a vast army with which it, uh, subjug well, it, it subjugated various Indian potentates. So either the Indian potentates were with us or they were against us, and if they were against us, they would be clobbered by the the army of the East Indian Company until they cooperated with trade or exploitation or handing over resources, whatever it was. Ditto, the British forced their way into China uh, in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s with the, with the opium wars, forcing opium on the Chinese, which they... They became addicted to because that was the only thing that we could flog to them, opium grown in India. But that was done by violence. So when we talk about free trade or free trade imperialism, it was done with violence. Just as when we think about empires of settlement the, the, or the colonies of settlement in Canada, Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, these were not just settlers driving their wagons over the open plains and... Uh, deciding to farm, the, 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 the colonial settlement was based on expropriation of indigenous peoples and very often the massacre of indigenous peoples. So there's a whole story of the violence of colonialism, which is either glossed over or forgotten about or ignored. And we're left with a sort of, I mean, one of the, one of the ways in which we look at empire is, is the sort of through the rose-tinted spectacles of the Raj and uh, endless merchant ivory films about the British Raj and everyone in their place, and and yet you know this entirely forgets you know the the fact that British rule and British exploitation caused numerous famines in India. We pride ourselves about the export of democracy and and the rule of law, but we were very brutal to the Indians when they demanded self-government. Think of the Amritsar massacre. We denied them. Uh, self-government, democracy by every trick in the book until the very last minute. I think the swashbuckling, buccaneering nation is on the one hand uh, risible, but on the other hand it does call to attention the fact that uh, the empire was based on violence in, in, in many different forms. I think it's Salman Rushdie you quoted as saying the problem is that a lot of British history happened, quotes, over there. So we weren't occupied in the way that some European countries were, or we didn't suffer border changes in recent times the way some European countries did. Although it's rather simple, is it actually quite a, a good explanation for why we have been able to be so amnesiac about the things, the, the sorts of things that you've just described? I mean, I think I think what Salman Rushdie was 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 talking about was the British history happening over there. I think he I, I think he was also he was referring to um, colonial violence. The dark side of imperialism that 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 the British public and British school children are not told about. They're told about the vast expense of pink and the spreading of Christianity, trade, prosperity, civilization. They're not told about the dark underside. But yes, I think it is. I think it's very significant that uh, Britain wasn't occupied, and we do have this notion of our island story, as it's sometimes called which is the story of, a, of, a, of an offshore maritime nation 
which may have been small, but it didn't stop it from conquering the world, both in terms of trade and industry and uh, in terms of military power. And of course, military power was always at the service of, of trade and industry. But there is a way in which the story that we like is a story of continuity, going back to 1066, if not going back before, an Anglo-Saxon uh, people. And also, it's very much a, a, a white story, a story of a white Britain, which expanded and through its trade and, and, and settler population across the, the globe. And it's, it's not really a story of the peoples of empire who were first of all over there, as it were, but then came to inhabit the metropolis. One of the elements that this island story finds difficult to cope with is the fact that Britain now is very much a multicultural society. And yet, in the island story, that multicultural, diverse population is very much, I would say, marginalized because instinctively, and we come back to D-Day, we are telling the story of white British or white English people who uh, fought wars and built empires. And I think if we are to rethink our past and indeed to rethink our present, we need to get away from the we as white British and think about a we which is much more diverse and multicultural and try to understand that the other people have a history that is not ours and other people have a history, have an experience of our history, which is not the same as the white British experience of our history. They were at the other end of the Maxim gun or the gunboat and they have a story of empire which is which is another story of empire, which in a sense needs to be integrated into the story that we tell ourselves about empire. And you teach, Robert, both in the UK and in France. How do you think the university sector is coping with that challenge of teaching a different story, a more nuanced story, a more inclusive story? I mean, I think in Britain, you know, we are making progress, slow progress. Uh, so, for example, in the history faculty here, there's a requirement that every student studies not only British history and European history, but global history. There's a new option on uh, the global 20th century, which I've been teaching, which is a lot about empire and the effects of empire and the global south and so on. We still have a long way to go. We're probably about to make an appointment in black British history, which will be a first in Oxford. In France, curiously, they're possibly even more behind than we are. I mean, although France is a republic, you know, the republic was also a colonial, a huge colonial power. I mean, Jules Ferry, who invented free compulsory secular education in the 1880s, was also the great architect of the French Empire in the same period. So the French have what they call their own colonial empire, their colonial republic. And I think in, in French universities, there are some people who talk about the Algerian War and the effects of the Algerian War. But there is a there is a post-colonial school of French historians, the, the school that invented the concept of the colonial fracture, but they are not uh, in the academic mainstream. They don't actually hold academic jobs, mainstream academic jobs, and they've been more or less deliberately kept out of the academic mainstream. So I think they also have a long way to go, although famously during his election campaign, Macron said that uh, the French had to apologise for colonialism as a crime against humanity. And I'm not sure whether he said that as a kind of soundbite or a sort of piece of bravado, 
But the fact that he said it was in itself extraordinary. I don't think you'd ever find a British politician saying that colonialism was a crime against humanity. Maybe in 20 years' time, maybe in 50 years' time, but not right now. I wanted to return to this idea you mentioned a little bit earlier of animosity when post-war immigrants began to arrive from former colonies. And you talk about it, I think, as a sort of double affront. And I hadn't, I hadn't encountered that idea before, that not only did some people resent immigrants coming here, but in some way it sort of sharpened the sense of loss and humiliation uh, that, that followed empire. Well, in my book, I quote um, a letter written to Enoch Powell after he was uh, dismissed from uh, the Shadow Cabinet for his Rivers of Blood speech. And he had a huge postbag, which a historian Camilla Schofield has, has analysed. And there's one letter in particular which says, you know, this is an absolute scandal. This country has been sold down the river by these politicians who not only lose an empire, after our boys won the Second World War, they, they lose the empire and then they let these immigrants into the country. So there's a sense, I think there is a sense in which loss of empire meant that those people who were out there came to live amongst us in the metropolis. And although we invited them uh, initially, the British people has, has struggled to, to, to welcome them and to integrate them. One of my favourite lines also comes from a Jamaican singer called Louise Bennett, who in the 1960s talked about colonising in reverse. She said, you know, the Jamaican people, the West Indian people are coming to Britain to work and to live, and this is colonisation in reverse. And on the one hand, it's, it's a joyful moment. On the other hand, she wonders how the British are going to deal with it. And in fact, the British had trouble dealing with it. And I think one of the, one of the issues that the British has, has had is to deal with this by, in a sense, reimposing colonial hierarchies vis-a-vis -vis immigrants. I mean, for a long time, there were colour bars. Immigrants were not allowed to uh, rent rooms or buy houses, or they were pushed towards different kinds of schools. So there's a sense in which they, they also lived in, in, in different areas, there was a certain ghettoization of inner-city areas. And of course, immigrant populations in places like Brixton were treated with a certain amount of kind of colonial violence. So when people talk about racism, which is still very powerful in our society, and possibly more powerful, I think there were there were there were various multicultural moments and moments of multicultural embrace, for example, in the 1990s, but these seem to have disappeared from view. So the point I was going to make is that what we call racism, what we generally call racism. I would call the re-establishment of colonial hierarchies because I do think that the, the white British population has an instinct to treat immigrant populations of African, Asian or Caribbean origin as if they were from the colonies and that those hierarchies are being reimposed and played out. And I think this was very clear over the Windrush, over the Windrush affair, that Caribbean immigrants, many of whom had lived in this country as long as we had coming over in the 50s and 60s they were treated as illegal immigrants and attempts were made well not only just attempts, they were they were deport deportations happened they were uh, they were shut out of public services and accommodation and jobs by a form of colonial segregation and discrimination 
and apartheid. And without understanding the colonial background and the colonial dynamics, I don't think it's possible to to really understand the Windrush, the Windrush uh, scandal. And what about France, which will probably be less familiar to most people listening to this? What kind of reception did immigrants get there? And I know that multiculturalism was something which the French regarded as Anglo-Saxon and alien and not to be pursued. Did they make a different set of mistakes? The Algerian population, the North African population, and uh, the South the South Saharan population in France was received uh, with hostility. I mean, it was u- it was invited and used as in Britain to do building work and industrial labour and so on. Uh, but it was also ghettoized, and just as we had Enoch Powell, the French had Jean-Marie Le Pen. I mean, uh, curiously, the, the political and electoral reaction against immigrants in France was about 20 years later. You can see the um, elections using rhetoric against immigrants and anti-immigrant feeling in Britain in the 1960s, but it, you have to wait until the 1980s uh, for it to happen with France in France with Le Pen and the National Front. The French have an additional problem, an additional challenge, because, as you say, they don't like the idea of what they call communitarianism. They don't like the idea that communities, immigrant communities or other communities, religious, cultural, ethnic communities, have their own identity and leadership and that public authorities dialogue with them. They think that everyone should, that France is a republic, that France is a colorblind republic, and that everyone should be educated and integrated into republican values, that everyone can become a citizen, and the republic does not pay any attention to people's religion or race or gender or anything else. But of course, in reality, it does. And this flared up in 1989 with the so-called veil affair when young Muslim women wearing uh, the hijab were excluded from state schools and huge debates took place on whether so-called ostentatious religious signs could be worn in places like school state schools which were supposed to be religiously neutral but of course one person's neutrality is another person's discrimination and this also flared up in uh, i think it was 2004 when a new law came in to clear up the ambiguity about this and the law became very firm that the hijab could not be worn in state schools. And this was very much seen as anti-Muslim in many quarters. And the interesting thing was it, it coincided with a new, another law that was passed in 2005 requiring that uh, the French education system should teach what was called the positive message of French imperialism in schools and universities and this this provoked a huge a huge row and one of the things it generated was an organization called les indigènes de la république the indigenous of the republic which was a movement led by um, young muslim women but also men but french educated who had assumed a muslim identity in response to this discrimination but but also assumed a post-colonial identity. So they started to criticize the French state not only for its anti-Muslim approach, but also for its colonial history. And they started to dig around and to throw French colonial history back in the face of the administration. And in particular, they, they picked on a founding date in May 1945, which was both VE Day, 
in Europe, but it was also a moment when Algerian populations who came out and said, well, you've got your liberty, you've, you've defeated fascism and Nazism, and now we want our liberty, we want self-determination of the Algerian people, and they were met, they were met by gunfire by the French police and military. This was the 8th of May, 1945, in North Africa. And so the French, they have their own problems of colonial legacy and uh, violence and division, and what I call the colonial fracture, or what has been called the colonial fracture, to deal with, as we do, in different ways, but it's, it's the same fundamental problem. It'll quite soon be 20 years since 9-11. Do you think the public discourse about radical Islam has changed in that time, deepened or merely calcified? In other words, has any kind of insight into where it comes from actually been gained in those intervening years? Well, the, the problem of, of, of Islam um, you know, complicates the colonial problem and it complicates the, 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 the question of immigration. There's a wonderful piece by Hanif Qureshi where he has two young Pakistanis talking to each other and one calls the other one a Paki. And the first one says, did you call me a Paki? No more Paki, me a Muslim. And there's a way in which immigrant populations who were you in the in the seventies and eighties would have described themselves as Asian of Asian origin start to identify as as Muslim, and it's a way of recovering honor against colonial disdain. And then this was caught up with uh, the resurgence of Islam and Islamism, in particular with the Iranian Republic in 1979, and then with complications with the Gulf War which had, a, had an impact on the arrival of Osama bin Laden. Then there was 9-11 and there was ISIS. And so the whole, the colonial problem and the, the immigration issues then had to be seen through the, through the lens of Islamism and Islamism came to complicate them. And so, for example, one found what I call a resurgence of imperialism or neo-imperialism with the so-called war on terror. What we were taught, we were told that these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were wars on terror, but they were colonial wars, imperialist wars, fought in the same places as they've been fought for hundreds of years and in the, for the same reasons. And that produced a kind of blowback. So the violence done to these populations sharpened is Islamism and jihadism and produced, provoked 7-7 in London in 2005, and then Charlie Hebdo, and then the attacks in London and Manchester in 2017. These are all related to and responses to the ongoing colonial offensive. And for us in the press, it's just, it is, it is described as terrorism, for which there is no excuse, but we do have to explain why these things happen and without and without excusing them one does have to analyze as amnesty international has done the relationship between british and french and american colonial violence in iraq and libya and syria and the responses that there have been to that so that i think islam and islamism complicate the colonial dimension they also complicate the the immigration question, because it is it is possible for the tabloid press, for example, to portray 
many immigrants as of Muslim origin understood also that people of Muslim origin may well be terrorists and therefore this is an error you know the 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 the, the incentive and the and the need to restrict immigration is also seen as a defense against Islamism the complications that are produced by Islamism have they've they've exaggerated and heightened questions regarding colonialism and questions regarding immigration and have made things actually much more difficult to understand that but also to digest and of course play into what where we started with with brexit and the nigel farage effect the the opportunism um of the nigel farage effect yes i mean i'll just quote one thing which is um i bought a copy of the sun the day after brexit as a sort of souvenir copy so i can't now remember it was the sun or the daily mail anyway on the on the front cover it's it's all about the wonders of Brexit, and then you turn into the middle of the page, and there's a picture of a boat, a rubber boat carrying a, a very a large number of immigrants of African or Middle Eastern or Afghani origin, and the and the strap and the headline says "Business as usual in the Mediterranean." So the implication was, as the Farage campaign wanted us to believe, that the Brexit campaign was also it was, a, it was a campaign for sovereignty, but it was also a campaign to keep out immigrants and understood above all immigrants of, of Muslim origin. And that was reinforced by this this canal that um, Turkey was going to be uh, brought into the European Union. You mentioned the sun. And in your book, you quote the sun at the time of the uh, referendum in 1975, saying words to the effect that we'd lost the empire, but we've gained a continent. The referendum was roughly two-thirds in favour of remaining and one-third in favour of leaving. Where do you see the, the gears begin to shift and that begin to, to really switch around? I think it was around the time of Maastricht. Well, I suppose if you, if you go back a bit earlier, you see Mrs Thatcher was actually responsible for the single market that is now uh, so much criticised. But where Margaret Thatcher began to falter was after German unification. Uh, but she didn't like Jacques Delors, as we know, the president of the European Commission. But I think I think it was German reunification in 1989-1990 which which made her quite apoplectic about Europe and that and that Europe was now going to be a German project and we couldn't abide this and why we why had we bothered to win the war if we were now going to lose it in peace to a German run Europe. And then with the Maastricht Treaty, there seemed to be a creeping federalization and a shift towards the euro. And although Britain was granted all sorts of opt-outs at the time of Maastricht, you can see that um, this is where the Eurosceptics come from. So all the great Eurosceptics like uh, Bill Cash, Peter Lilly, John Redwood, Norman Tebbit at that time, they're all gearing up at the time of Maastricht. And... Although um, at that point it was, it was a sort of small cloud of people. There was also James Goldsmith and his, and his referendum party and the beginnings of UKIP in the 1990s. So it starts to build up at that point. But I think in the sort of Blair years, you know, there's a big Labour majority and Labour's not going to do anything about Europe. Interestingly enough, uh, there's a bit in Tony Blair's memoirs at the time of the referendum on the European Constitution in nineteen in two thousand and five, which the French voted against, 
and Blair writes in his memoirs he's on holiday in Tuscany and he breathes a sigh of relief when the French vote against the referendum because he says he knows that this project is, is at the moment dead and there will not have to be a referendum in Britain. And he says that he doesn't know whether uh, that referendum would go the way of the European Constitution. And subsequently, those provisions were brought back into the Lisbon Treaty and uh, I think um, Gordon Brown sent Foreign Minister Miliband to sign it and then cited himself in a, in a darkened room somewhere without any publicity. So I think my, my own feeling is that, is that Tony Blair should have done more to kind of put Europe and the benefits of Europe onto the agenda, but he didn't. And uh, this meant that the Euroscepticism grew and grew, and then there was another there was another boost to it, not only because of growing European integration, but also because of the perceived threat of migration and Islamism in the wake of 9-11. So to conclude, Robert, we're talking in early summer and the prospect of Prime Minister Johnson and a hard Brexit is certainly a realistic possibility. Rather than the, the demons of empire being laid to rest, it does seem as though we're, we're hurtling in the opposite direction. We've seen an, a, a spike in racial violence and verbal abuse and all sorts of things since the Brexit vote. Are you pessimistic? Do you think we're probably heading for a rude awakening, but that's the most likely outcome? What seems clear to me is, is, is that the middle ground has disappeared. Theresa May was, was seeking a middle ground, a Brexit deal, but she'd boxed herself in from the beginning with her red line saying that she wanted a a deal, but but it would we would be outside the single market and outside the customs union, and I think that wasn't a good start. So I think I think with the failure of, of Theresa May's deal, it looks very unlikely that, that 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 a similar deal will go through because the Tory most of the Tory candidates think that a no deal is preferable to a deal. And on the other side, however, there is a kind of um, resurrection or a a boost to the Remain vote and the Remain campaign, although it's divided. And it now seems to me that we're on a sort of, we're almost in a civil war solution between uh, Remainers and no-deal leavers. Only politics will tell what the outcome will be. I suppose my own feeling is that it's very difficult to renegotiate the deal that we've got. The next Tory leader and Prime Minister will be under a lot of pressure to force a revision of the deal or to leave with no deal. And so that is that becomes a distinct possibility. But there's also a sense that the Remainers also feel that the wind is behind them. And, I mean, it seems to me there must be... Either there's a second referendum or there is, there's a general election, which the new Tory leader will have to call at some point in order to get legitimacy. And then it's up to the Remainers to get organised and for the Labour Party to uh, sort itself out and for a pushback to take place because I think um, I think that as I say the middle the middle ground for compromise is gone there, 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 there will I hope there will be a pushback and uh, a sort of rainbow coalition of Remainers which will uh, try and sort the, sort the thing out but at the same time all this will have to be on the back of a great deal of rethinking about our place in history, where we want to be in respect of our relation with Europe in the next generation, uh, 
we will have to take on board the younger generation, which is much more pure, much more pro-European and uh, engaged in issues of climate change and social justice and global justice. So I suppose I would like to think that what we are seeing with Brexit is is the death throes of imperialism and colonialism. And that's that is what I that is what I hope. There's just the off, there's just the slight danger that far from being dead, it'll uh, come out of the grave once again and uh, make our lives a whole lot worse. Zombie imperialism. <laughs> I was talking to Robert Gilday about his recent book for Cambridge University Press, Empires of the Mind: The Colonial Past and the Politics of the Present, out now in hardback. There's more information about it on CUP's website. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme, featuring Marianne Turner on her eye-opening new biography of Chaucer. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.